0: and is people! No, I am the
1: father. Oh. What's in the box? You maniac! You blew it up!
2: Hi, this is Dana Stevens, Slate's movie critic, here with a Slate spoiler special on Midsomar. Is that how we've decided to pronounce it, guys? Midsommar in our faux Scandinavian way? <laughs> I, th- I think
0: we've decided to pronounce it that way once. <laughs> <laughs> it's so. the only way. Midsommar.
2: So joining me in the Slate studio to talk about Midsommar are Samuel Adams, Slate's culture writer. Hi, Sam. Hello. Hello. Uh, And Daniel Schrader, what do we call you? Podcast producer? Yeah, I'm a podcast producer.
1: I uh, produce the gist and outward. Um, Yeah, that's that's me.
2: And formerly production assistant for our own beloved Slate Culture gabfest and, and
0: number one midsummer fan. That's oh, right. Yes.
2: Yes, we should mention also that this is an off week for spoilers. Normally there would not be a spoiler special this week, but because of audience demand and Daniel Schrader demand <laughs> and various people writing in uh, to say, why are we not spoiling this very spoilable movie, we're now going to be doing it even though it opened a couple weeks ago.
1: I just have to ask, did this movie make you feel held? <laughs> Oh, no.
2: Wait, you're stealing my thunder. That's my gambit sorry, at the sorry. beginning of each spoiler special. I already know your answer, but I'm going to go around just so that we know as we get into spoiling what everyone's general affect is. So you are completely pro and heavily identified and essentially twirling in a Swedish field. Oh, yes. In an embroidered I'm, linen shirt Send right me
1: now. to my stupa. like right now. <laughs> Please, let me jump off a cliff.
2: And Sam, I read your review, but I, I, and I'm going to read you a couple lines from it later that I think are somewhat ambiguous. I still am not totally sure if you're a pro or a con on Midsummer. It seems like you're a reserved pro.
0: I, I think that's right. I mean, sometimes you write a review to figure out how you feel, then it's sort of an ongoing process for this. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think I am possibly more pro the movie as a gesture than as a, an emotional experience, but I deeply appreciate the gesture.
2: Yeah. All right. All right. I, could, I guess I can get with that. I mean, I will say that I think this movie has had a similar half-life in my mind as Hereditary, Ari Aster's debut feature from last year, in that during the watching of it, I was fascinated and confused and trying to figure out what was going on and kind of disappointed in the ending, but weighing it all. And then it started to sour in my mind pretty quickly afterwards. Like, I started to be able to almost make fun of it within days. And I think if the movie had really scared me or moved me or done anything to me on a deep level, that wouldn't have been so possible.
0: I mean, I think I've had something of the opposite experience with like with this movie at least. Um hereditary, you know, watch I saw like the you know, world premiere at, at Sundance and it was clearly like going to be a thing, but I was also like Skeptical of it, and the more I thought of it, the more it just like didn't hang together. Like it just felt like a lot of stuff kind of thrown at a wall. But it really had. I mean, th- that is a movie that like announces its theme in the title, and then I think doesn't really stick to it. Midsummer is one that I, like the more I thought about it, the the more I feel like it actually does work very kind of effectively to its theme, and that has made thinking about it has made it richer for me.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe I should see it again. The thing is that I have no real desire to see it again because of the extreme gore, <laughs> which we'll also problem. get yeah. into.
1: I, I I appreciated the extreme gore. I've already seen it twice. I'm planning on seeing it again. It's it's. I love Hereditary though, so maybe I'm just a blind Ari Aster stan. I've had
0: I've had some people ask me like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about seeing Midsummer, but I'm not sure. You know, I I'm not like a I can't really handle gore, and I'm just like no. Mm-hmm. don't see it.
2: <laughs> see it. Although it's a strange combination of extremely gory but not that scary. Well, it's very Wouldn't clinical. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, there's you see a lot of splayed open bodies. Someone compared the shots of, of Smash Skulls to Francis Bacon paintings.
0: But you don't really but, see it but like you don't happening. See,
2: right. And they are the result. We'll get to what they're the result of. But they're not necessarily the result of, you know, Hitchcock style, you know, meanies stalking you. There's not suspense in that way in right. this movie. In fact, there's too little suspense in my opinion.
1: Well, I, I, I appreciate the lack of suspense. I think that's part of the magic of the movie, which we will definitely get into. But I also, uh, for the gore, I'm not a gore boy. I tend to hate it. It like makes me uncomfortable. But for some reason in this movie, I, I think there are reasons that when we get to where the gore happens, I can kind of explain why I think uh, it's so effective for me. But I appreciated the gore and kind of was weirdly elated to look <laughs> at it and see it happen. And the second time watching it, I was... I found myself looking forward to it even though I knew it was going to be so graphic and gross. It was there was this weird elation I felt. So mm.
2: Yeah, you're playing right into Ari's hands. I really am. All right, so let's start We actually don't have to spoil for long to get to the gore because this movie starts off as did Hereditary actually with a with a big violent splash. So does anybody want to want to hit it from the beginning? <laughs> the very first thing we do is we meet Danny, the main character played by Florence Pugh, and she's on the phone with her boyfriend. Correct? It's yeah.
1: snowing outside. It's the winter.
0: Yeah. I mean, if I'm remembering correctly, I mean, the first thing we see in the movie is like the phone ringing and it's this series of kind of static like cut ins toward this house. And we find out that, you know, Danny Arter, the main character played by Florence Pugh, is trying to call her parents. Seems kind of panicked about it, but we don't really understand why. And then we learn in the space of a couple minutes that her sister is bipolar you know, has some sort of, like, suicidal ideation and has kind of threatened to kill herself beforehand and has sent this really ominous email saying, like, everything is dark here, I'm going, mom and dad are coming too, um, something like that, and she can't get through either by email or phone to her sister or her parents and is freaking out. It turns out shortly that she is correct to be that way, but the first thing she does after trying to call them is she turns to her boyfriend, uh, Christian, played by Jack Rainer, for help, and this is where we find out, well, we get the the first hint that he is a really shitty boyfriend, which the movie will elaborate on at great
2: length. Okay, once again, me injecting some editorializing here, but don't we find out that he's shitty way too early in the movie so that there is no trajectory there whatsoever? I mean, I think you could say the same thing about all the grad student guys, which we'll get to, but especially with Jack, if there were a little bit more of a trajectory of, of learning as she learns that he's horrible... Again, I would I would care more, but it's so signposted from scene one. I I,
1: mean, I think to at least to me, I, yes, it is definitely very telegraphed from the beginning that like he is a bad dude. We're supposed to like not root for him. But I think that kind of gets to the idea of this being a breakup movie. And that's uh, what, how I view it. And I think how Ari Aster has said he's viewed it. But when you're in a relationship that isn't a good relationship that needs to end, you you know that it needs to end before you're ending things. And so, like, for all that she needs this emotional support from him, I also think that she is aware that he's maybe not a good guy, but she is so desperate for A community for a to feel held to feel like someone is there for her that she has any family now that she's willing to look past that awful trash bagness that is him (laughs) to find any sort of comfort at all.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I mean, well, not to get too far ahead of ourselves or a lot ahead of ourselves, but I mean, the the kind of the last major dramatic act in the movie is when Danny is presented with this big kind of climactic choice, and because. We know that Christian is a shit from the beginning. It is not actually a choice in in dramatic terms. And so that makes kind of the very last thing that you're supposed to be waiting for in the movie, uh, like a foregone conclusion. So, yes, I think that's a little bit of an issue for me. That's one of the things where I feel like the movie might be a little more effective if there was some if you're watching the relationship fall apart rather than just waiting for her to come to terms with the fact that it's already over.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's kind of an insult to her intelligence as a character that she knows for that long. But of course, you're right, Daniel, that I mean, I'm one to talk like which one of us hasn't stayed in a relationship horrifically far too long until we were ready to push someone off a Swedish cliff.
1: Yeah, (laughs) exactly.
0: I mean, those are the really bad breakups when it's over for a long time, but you haven't actually pulled
1: the trigger. Right, right. So to speak.
2: So then, what is the big tragedy that occurs for the equivalent of the beheading of the little girl in Hereditary in this movie? Right. Yeah.
1: So uh, we find out that Danny's sister has hooked up hoses to the exhaust pipes of the cars in her parents' house and has piped them into her parents' bedroom and duct taped the like floor so that basically their room fills with carbon monoxide. And then she, then she has taped the hose to her own mouth and has committed suicide that way. And you see this very graphic image of it zooming in on her. The sister's face and she has vomit coming down her shirt and there's just the duct tape mouth. And it's an image that actually recurs a couple of times over the course of the movie. Um, You realize that like even though Danny hasn't necessarily seen this, she has seen it like it's something so vivid to her as to what has happened that it's an image that pops up now and again at these traumatic uh, moments. In the movie, like when she first starts tripping on drugs at the cliff scene and everything like that.
2: Right. Even though it's a moment that's initially seen just by an objective camera with the the cops discovering the bodies. But that happens very early. I mean, you even say it in your review that it happens, right? It's barely a spoiler because it happens in the first few minutes.
0: Right. That's yeah. That's one of the things where I sort of like if it's. The very first thing that happens in the movie, like, I, I don't think it counts as a spoiler to say that. But yes, so the, the movie announces itself right at the beginning as a movie about trauma and grief. I mean, it's, it's you know, five minutes in and Danny is like curled up in Christian's lap on her couch, just sobbing, saying no, no, no.
1: Yeah, with these like animalistic wails that I was so impressed that she could pull forth as an actress. It, it felt like there were just sounds coming out of her wailing that I like... It hurt just to listen to almost. Yeah,
2: Florence Pugh is great. I mean, she is the Tony Collette of this movie. And that scene mm-hmm. has an exact equivalent in Hereditary as well. I mean, this is kind of me in a way maybe dissing Ari for making the same movie with like different costumes. But, you know, he has this figure of a woman who's kind of in this place of grief that nobody else can reach and needs to do something extreme Needs to search out something extreme in order to assuage that grief. So the extreme thing that she then proceeds to do is to tag along on this trip to Sweden, to rural Sweden, that her boyfriend has secretly planned to take without her. It seems like as part of a beginning gambit of of breaking up with her, right? He was going to go with just his three grad student buddies.
1: And I think one of the funniest moments of the movie, for me at least, is when he's telling his friends, like... Danny's on her way up, and I invited her to Sweden. She's not coming. Like, she's definitely not coming. But I invited her because, like, you know, of course, I invited her. And I mean, yeah, she might be coming, but like, she's definitely not coming. And it's just so. And just so
0: you know, this is your idea, and you all know about this.
1: Exactly. And then um, as soon as he says that, she's there at the door, and so they don't even get to respond. And it's just hilarious in the way that he doesn't know how to manage his relationship with her.
0: And and I mean, there's a perfectly dysfunctional kind of end of life relationship conversation that she has with Christian where he's like, well, I said I was thinking about going to Sweden, you know, and and basically he's trying to pretend that he told her that he's going to Sweden for a month in like two weeks and he absolutely didn't. And she knows that he didn't. And he's insisting that he did and basically kind of gaslighting her
1: and, and flips she is it on her. So he, she ends up apologizing to him for like even confronting him about the like going to Sweden,
0: and that's when you're just sitting there, like, please, please break up, like, right now. <laughs> but they don't,
2: and that's but that's what makes the last scene feel so long and coming. I may also say, yeah, the scene where the four grad students and we should just say who they all are because they're all going to go to Sweden and have various strange things happen to them. Um, I don't, uh, I'm not going to know all the character names, but so- Will Poulter right William Jackson Harper and mm. who's the swedish actor who plays Wilhelm Pelle Wilhelm Blomgren and as Wilhelm Pelle. Blomgren is Pelle who's the swede who invites them in the first place there's a scene where they sit around with Christian and essentially sort of, like, rub their hands together in evil glee about what a bachelor trip they're going to have. And I would just posit that that's another scene where it just turns all of those guys into just undifferentiated assholes so that I'm not so interested in their individual journeys anymore.
1: I didn't necessarily see it as, like, all four of them gleefully doing that. I think that Pele was kind of playing along because he knew what he was really doing. And I clearly um, the uh, Will Poulter character, whose name in the movie is Mark, is there as just like this horn dog ready to just like fuck any Swedish woman that comes along and William Jackson Harper who's who plays Josh is there as just like a almost like a v- academic voyeur that's really why he's going and so it really Makes clear all of their reasons for going. I don't think that they're necessarily all just like, oh, we're going to go fuck chicks. But that's. But Will
0: Poulter is definitely there. Like, it's not even. I guess he's technically an anthropology student, but he's not even like pretending that he's working on this. He's just like, we're going to go and nail some Swedish chicks. And like, when he finds out that, you know, that they're not they're able to like detour through Stockholm's red light district on the way to this remote village, he's like quite upset. <laughs>
2: So on the way to the village, actually one of my favorite shots in the movie occurs on the Likewise. way to the village, the upside down car, right? There's this crazy, I don't know how it's accomplished, some sort of 360 degree shot that turns their car driving down a rural upside I assume it's a drone at this down. point. I
0: guess I always assume those shots are drones now. Yeah,
2: I guess it starts up from really high like a drone shot would. But anyway, the way it, is, it slowly achieves that turnaround is great and actually does something that I think some of the middle of the movie fails to do, which is, you know, give you that sense of unsettled upside downness, like now we're going to, to someplace it's really different and really weird. And how is it really weird when mm-hmm. they get to the Horga? That's the name of the commune, right? Yes. The Horgas?
1: It's like Horga's Land is the banner that they drive under, and as the camera slowly flips up. And that's when we first meet the uh, other members of the community. We meet some of the young members. Uh, we meet Pele's brother and the like British friends that Pele's brother met and brought along on this trip. And they all decide, you know what? Let's take some mushrooms. That's, I think, where the fucked up in his starts.
2: <laughs> Before they've even just, like, put their duffel bags down in their hut or anything. They're mm-hmm. drinking mushroom tea. I mean, even if you hadn't just lost your entire family in a horrible murder-suicide, that might not be the wisest choice. I
1: mean, what do you think I'm uh, drinking right now?
0: And the, and the movie also makes clear, and this is a... Sort of a hobby horse of mine when movies don't do it, but the movie makes clear not only that Danny is on, who's a psychology student, we should mention, but not only that she's on meds, but it shows you, like, that she is specifically on Ativan, which is Mm -hmm. used for a number of things, but anti-anxiety is one of them. But it sort of, it bugs me always when movies, it's like when somebody goes into a bar and orders a beer, when a character's kind of just on, like, pills. Mm -hmm. Um, It's like it's just... That tells you something. It's an opportunity to tell you something about the character that's missed when you just do it
2: generically. I saw, I heard, saw that in other places, and I must have blinked for a minute when um, she took her out of it. When
1: she's talking on the phone with her girlfriend, who is basically like your boyfriend's trash, leave him. He's a bad guy. He wouldn't be treating you this way if he were actually a supportive boyfriend. She's like talking to her and goes to the bathroom of her studio and like opens the pill bottle. And it says Ativan on it. But it's like a very it's a one moment thing. So if you'd miss that, you missed it.
0: Right. Unless you're like it's a thing that you are weirdly obsessed with. Like me, you might not notice. Um, Yeah,
1: I didn't notice till the second time I saw it.
0: But it is. But it's clearly like whatever is, is probably not something that you're supposed to mix with psychedelic mushrooms.
2: What do you guys think it means that she sees on two different occasions? Once when she's on drugs and I think maybe another time when she's not, that she sees grass growing through her feet. Is that something oh, she's about. She's like... drugs both times. Oh, she is? Because
1: the second time she sees it is when they're doing the, the maple, um, dance. maple Dance. The Maple Dance, and they'd all had the right. dandelion drug wine. The special, right. the special water. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah. I
2: mean, do you think the idea there is basically just supposed to be that she is becoming one with the land and the earth and the place where she is? Or is it like she's dead and the grass is growing up through her or something? It's a great eerie image. It is a
0: great eerie image. that I'm. Th- that's one of the things. I mean, so much of this movie I think you can really read in very, like, kind of firm allegorical terms. That's one that I I feel like is... I, I might wish there's more of this in the movie. That one I think is, is, is resists parsing a little yeah, bit. Yeah, you're right. Which I it's like. more
2: open ended, and maybe that's why I'm I'm drawn to it because I think there is a lot of um, mallet to the head kind of imagery, mm-hmm. as it were. I
0: mean, it is her being kind of literally rooted in the ground, which is the idea that eventually the movie is going to finish up with. Like it ends up being, it is a, a breakup movie. Like Ari Aster said, like that's where the inspiration came from. He's kind of sees himself uh, as Danny Arter. Ari Aster, not hard to. Um, mm. See the similarity between those two names, but it ends up as a referendum on kind of grief and society and being like, are you, do you like if you lose your family, if you lose your boyfriend, then you're kind of alone in the world. But if you belong to this, the Harga, we learn as kind of a communal society where obviously people are born from mothers and fathers. Biology still works the same way, but they're not raised by them. They're kind of raised by the, the village as a whole. And that way they're not susceptible to loss and grief in the same way. And that eventually becomes like a very appealing idea for right. Danny.
2: Although Pele, and we didn't mention this, but he does say to her in that early scene when they discover that she's coming to Sweden and everyone else is being a jerk about it, he does say something to her about, I understand your grief because my parents died in a fire. Me, meet me, meep. Me, well, he says, yeah, he says detail. my parents,
0: my parents burned up in a fire. And he says it exactly that way twice, which... I don't quite know how to... I mean, we mentioned, I mean, the movie ends with a literal immolation, and I don't know if we're supposed to draw a connection between those, but it's such a slightly off way of saying it. It's just one of those lines that, like, really stuck in my head oh, for I some reason. Oh, I completely made that. I, yeah. I mean,
2: after after the fire started, it was sort of, that flashed right back into my mind, especially because what happened to his, to his brother at the end, right. right? I mean, in a way, he is an actual parallel to Danny, both parents and a sibling, mm-hmm. you know, gone in, in an act of violence.
0: I'm not entirely sure how you make that timing work if they. this is something they only do, like, every 18 uh, years, but I, somehow.
1: It's
2: something they I, they only do
1: every 90 years, uh, but I I think at least... Yeah, then how could... He, oh, well. The, yeah. way <laughs> that, the way that I've thought about this, and I've definitely thought about this though I do one of the things I appreciate the most about this movie is that it is very minimal on lore it it doesn't like get bogged <laughs> world down. building yeah well it, to me like it doesn't get bogged down in the details of like who are the like gods in this world and what are the like like let's analyze the scripture and stuff it that really meant to me that we that's not something we had to waste our time on trying to like solve or figure out he didn't want it it's this isn't a movie that's like a puzzle box and so to me, I've just assumed that, like, there is some sort of self-immolation every year type of sacrifice thing to keep the numbers of the population low and sacrifice to the gods. But then going out and recruiting the outside people and sacrificing all nine is something that I assume it happens only every 90 years. But that's at least how I've thought about it.
0: Yeah, they don't even really explain, like, Pella has this whole speech where he says, like, oh, well, we believe that life happens in kind of 18-year increments. So from, like, 0 to 18, you're a child. From 18 to 36, which is where he is, that's like your pilgrimage, you go out and, you know, into the world and maybe, you know, lure some unsuspecting victims back to the village, uh, (laughs) if you feel like it. From 36 to 52 is when you're a worker, and then from 54 to 72 is when you're kind of a village elder, uh, and then... I think Danny asks, like, so what happens when you get to 72? And Pella does what seems to be this kind of joking, like, draw his finger across his throat, like stick his tongue out the side and roll his eyes upwards thing. And you're like, oh, what a funny joke. And then it turns out uh, he's actually being quite... Literal,
2: Which gets us to the next big plot beat, the attestupa, if I'm saying that right. I, it, it, this is a made-up ritual, but no. I guess well, no, uh, the, it's based on some up. old Swedish folklore. Right,
1: but yeah, the, that is like an actual thing. Uh, it's not necessarily like a ritualistic holy thing, but it is a uh, the idea that old people would throw themselves off of cliffs to relieve the family of their obligation to them. Senocide. Yeah. So the night before, in the beautiful barn that has all these wonderful paintings on it that kind of foretell what is maybe to come, Josh, uh, William Jackson Harper's character, asks, so what's happening tomorrow? And Pele says, "Anatostupa," And nobody knows what that is except for William Jackson Harper because he is an anthropology student studying this kind of stuff. And he's like, wait, really? a real one? And Pele's just like, I don't know. And then... Danny and Jack Raynor's character, Christian, are like, what is that? What is that? And nobody will tell them. So we don't. So They're just like wait and see. Exactly. Which is kind of the whole movie is like a something's going to happen. Just wait and see. And so we always know bad things are going to happen. So we go to this beautiful banquet laid out on a table that's kind of shaped in like a runic formation. And these two old, uh, this old man and old woman come forward in these like blue garbs and sit down and have this meal with everyone and it's clear that they are some sort of like village elder and they then get carted off to the cliff and everyone has to walk to the cliff to see what's going to happen and so they get to the cliff and the two old people are getting carted up there and have their hands cut and like run their hands of blood on these like runes up at the top and then get ready to jump off the cliff. And there's this one moment to me that really felt like it made us complicit in the watching of this, which is when all of the villagers get to the cliff. There's a shot that kind of pans back and there's one villager who's kind of facing the camera while everyone else is facing away and his hand is kind of open, welcoming us and basically looking directly at the camera, at least it seemed to me, kind of implying that we are there as well. We are a part of this community witnessing this ritual.
2: So as the old people go off the cliff one by one, what's happening in the crowd bit by bit? Like As the the newcomers realize what's happening and also how do do the Swedish commune members themselves react to what's going on?
1: Well, so as they are, as the first person gets ready to jump off the cliff, everyone is kind of still. No one really knows what's happening. But then all of a sudden, Danny realizes you see her gasp and grab Christian's arm. And then all of a sudden, the woman jumps and her face smashes on the rock and it bounces back. You see all of the gore of her face smashed.
2: For a fetishistically long time. Exactly. I and it is. I mean, it is. This is a
0: rock that's, you know, sort of an oblong rock roughly the shape of a human body with this one, you know, roughly head-sized protrusion. And it just seems so indicative of, like, the kind of filmmaker that Ari Aster is, that she just perfectly nails it. Like, (laughs) if she were, like, you know, a cartoon person, like, falling, just plummeting straight down, she could not have aimed any better. Like, her head perfectly hits the part that is your head is supposed to go splat on.
2: But the old guy doesn't stick the landing.
0: (laughs) No, he literally does not. Oh, Yes. Yeah.
2: And it has to be put out of his misery by a large mallet that is then brought out by another elder. And this part of the movie, I have to admit, like there was a part of me that resented Ariaster for just like grinding our faces in it, as it were, you know, <laughs> I mean, he really did not skimp on long shots of these busted open faces. And it was the only part of the movie I covered my eyes, and it wasn't real fear in a way. it was just it was just resentment. like, I don't want to go home with that image in my head.
0: I think that's a very, like, normal, like, sensible reaction in people who are like, well, I'm not really, you know, comfortable with Gore. Like, I don't like looking at that stuff. I'm, my, my response is always like, good. Like, you're probably a better adjusted and probably just <laughs> more better person than I am. But, I mean, it, it does, you know, the movie is very much kind of from Danny's POV like in her psyche and to the extent that like there's actually a shot of after these two bodies are lying at the bottom of the cliff there is then a shot of her sister and her parents bodies like lying on the ground in the same uh, positions that we saw them dead before so it's it's her You know, in a way, she has been kind of in shock, you know, up until that point. And this is her moving into the kind of, I guess, the acceptance stage of like the Kubler-Ross.
2: Which is uh, certainly modeled by the old people, right? I mean, I guess another thing that makes this scene not exactly scary, more sort of upsetting than it is scary, is that they're not dying against their will.
1: Right. I, I loved this scene in a way that I don't think either of you necessarily did, because to me, this, I... I was thrilled to watch the gore, but not in like a voyeuristic, ooh, let me see these people die kind of way, but more in the way that it seemed that the villagers, that the community was experiencing these deaths, which uh, in the context of the villagers, this is a this is a spiritual moment. This is a meaningful thing for them. And it's expressed by the leader of the village, clearly like running after the British couple who is very upset having to watch this and are like yelling, screaming like, oh my God, this is terrible. How are you letting them do this? Stop, don't jump, no. And she explains to them that this is this is one of their traditions. It has meaning to them in a religious sense. And so to watch these individuals who have chosen to give their lives for the improvement of the community is in a way honoring them. And so by enduring the graphic nature of their death, you are giving their deaths meaning. And that's kind of telegraphed, I think, by the breathing. That is one of my favorite recurrences in the movie of them screaming and breathing and writhing in pain in the way that the man who has missed the cliff and is still alive and they have to put out his misery, when he starts screaming in agony the rest of the community starts screaming with him and sharing his grief and that's something that i think as the movie plays out danny realizes she needs and there's a moment when that happens later that it to me it was like an emotionally moving experience to watch this and i felt like i was a part of something
0: i mean i think that's more resonant probably in a second viewing cuz i mean the the movie kind of makes that explicit later when there's a scene where danny kind of starts Wailing on her own as she did at the beginning, and the women of the village, kind of the young women of the village, kind of gather around her and start. At first, it almost seems like kind of mimicking or mocking her, and then you realize that it is sort of this weird kind of communal blob that is taking on this suffering.
2: Yeah, that that scene is is incredible with the women all kind of moaning in unison. Just a question about why that happens. Isn't that isn't that because she's just discovered the the sex barn? Yes. <laughs> situation. Yes. Okay, we'll get to the sex barn later on. <laughs> this is different but, grief. But that yeah. question of those women mourning with her and also the phone conversation she has with her friend back in the U.S. A couple different times in this movie, I thought, you know, does this movie pass the Bechdel test at all? I mean, I, there aren't really any women characters in it who, except Danny, who serve any purpose except general representation of Swedish, sexy, creepy cultiness, right? Like, she doesn't really connect with any other woman on the trip. I,
1: I, I think she connects very strongly with the women as she's dancing. And you can tell that, at least to me, that she really feels connected to them. But, like, there's even a moment when she starts speaking in Swedish with them. And she has just kind of, like, almost immersed herself in this, like, world of dance and has kind of just become one of them in a way that she may not have a connection to any one of them specifically, but she has a connection to them as a whole.
0: I mean, she is kind of hallucinating at that point, but she definitely, like, imagines that she has all of a sudden learned Swedish and can speak it to them. And I think it's, uh, like, I I don't know if it technically passes the Bechdel or not, but I mean, it it is, it might show like one of the limitations of it because so much in this movie happens without dialogue. Like when I go back and watch it a second mm-hmm. time, like one thing I'm curious of is I think Danny might not say anything for maybe like the last 20 minutes of the movie. Like she doesn't have a line, even when she makes that kind of big decision that I was talking about earlier. Like it happens off screen, you know, so she has this kind of pre-verbal wailing with these women, but I, you know, and I think there's maybe a line before that when she's like, what the fuck's going on in that barn? But, Like she has no dialogue for probably 10, 15 minutes at the end of the movie. And I think that's a very deliberate move on the Mm. film's part. And
2: in one of the many places where the the movie really depends on Florence Pugh's performance, you know, that her character, I think, is richer than it would be on the page because of what she brings to it.
0: I mean, I wanted to go back to what you were saying, Daniel, about how she's reacting to that ceremony and saying like, oh, this is their, you know, this is their tradition. One of my favorite lines in the movie, and I think it's, it's Christian who says it, but is like, listen, bro, it's cultural. You know, these people are like, what's going on here? Like, this is really And they're like, it's cultural. And just that kind of like blanket acceptance without understanding is so much to do with the particular ugliness of these particular Americans.
2: They certainly don't seem like anthropology grad students at all. Right. I mean, they have no more kind of cultural sensitivity or sense that, you know, they might be strangers who are disrupting a different place than, you know, your crassest American tourist. Well,
1: and I loved the way that Pele kept giving um, Josh the runaround of like, oh, well, sure, you can take pictures, but just very discreetly. Um, Oh, well, uh, let me talk to the village elders about whether or not you can even document any of this. Kind of like just stringing him along long enough until we can kill him off as like, I'm I'm not going to send up any red flags to you, Josh, but um, I'm going to uh, also not... Just like say, of course, sure, please. Or definitely not, because it doesn't matter. You're going to die.
0: Right. And maybe the concern, I mean, I I think we see William Jackson Harper's character like on his computer a lot. I mean, I think it's established they don't have um, all horror movies have to establish that people don't have Internet service at this point is like a requirement for the genre. So I guess it's not clear if he has Wi-Fi out there or not.
2: <laughs>
1: I
0: would assume He's getting
2: not. more worked on in his thesis. But they don't want Wi-Fi. him
0: like going yeah. on a hike and like, you know, uploading pictures to the cloud before they've managed to like, crush his skull with a hammer. <laughs> right.
2: But so, I mean, I think I was really touched, Daniel, by your description of the Adesupis scene and how you found it so moving and evocative of this community. But I mean, I, th- I think this movie sort of wants to have it both ways, right? Because it wants us to understand why Danny would be drawn to this community that's something larger than her that's going to make her feel held, et cetera. But it also wants to be an old-fashioned cabin in the woods, here's a bunch of young people, let's slaughter them one by one movie, which it then proceeds to accomplish in the next middle section, right, as we all knew was happening from the moment they decide to go there in the first place. I can't remember what order they get taken out in, but I think Mark is the first to to disappear, right, Mm -hmm. the the horn dog. Well, the first to
1: disappear are the British Right um, couple. And then Mark. Go- but gets... we
2: believe that the British couple at first have gotten away. Right.
1: Do you believe that? I never believe that for a second. As soon as as soon as we found out that the guy Simon left his girlfriend well, his fiance to go to the train station and that she would just catch up later. I was like, oh, they killed him. I always knew that they were going to die. But I mean, going into this movie. It's that's like the folk horror genre. I feel is just like knowing that oh everything's everything bad is going to happen. That's what's that's what this is. So I know what I signed up for. I'm I'm interested to see how they do it. Not- is the
2: folk horror genre by the way anything except The Wicker Man. <laughs> like what is this? What is this preceding does, group of movies Blair that are like count? The Wicker yeah. Man. Well, I guess maybe yeah.
1: Deliverance. There's, there's like a specific set of three movies that are thought of as like the folk horror. Trilogy that came out around the same time. Um, I can pull up the names if you want, but it's The Wicker Man and then uh, Witchfinder General, The Blood of Satan's Claw, and The Wicker Man.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> those other two have not had near the afterlife in pop culture. No, the Wicker but Man I had. am
1: seeking them out immediately. But I'm, yeah, I mean,
0: <laughs> like Hammer horror people are very big on like Witchfinder General. I've just never been one of them. Oh, really? Yeah.
1: So yeah, that's that's the folk horror genre as a whole.
2: So I don't think we need to go through what happens to each and every one of these people. I think we just need to know that they disappear one by one. We usually don't know exactly how or what happened yeah, to them. In Mark the case get, of Josh, you do actually see him get killed, right? Because yeah. he's taking a picture of the the runic,
1: the holy scripture, text. and that's something we haven't talked about because that's a weird thing. How like it's it's one of those weird moments where you get like just a flash of the like larger culture of these people, where you find out that they're. Oracles are specifically chosen by inbreeding and that, like, the community manages who mates with whom. And so they determine when a new oracle who is a who is not clouded by our normal way of thinking uh, is born. And so, like, that's a whole weird thing that we never even understand or get to know. And, like... So it's it's also weird because that character, the uh, Oracle, is laying there watching the orgy scene and everything anyway. Um, but, yeah, that's he just gets the mallet on the head or something in that scene. And Mark gets pulled off by a woman who's been kind of like giving him eyes the whole time. And then we just have Christian and Danny. That's who's left.
2: Yeah. we And that seems to happen, at least psychologically to me, it seems it happened pretty early in the movie. Right. Like everyone is discarded and Christian and Danny are left there. Alone. Mm -hmm. So I think the next plot points that we need to hit after Christian and Danny have been isolated with the creepy Swedish cultists is uh, the Maypole dance probably right which is is maple dance the moment when she thinks she can speak swedish because yes. she's on yes. mushroom tea or whatever it is and and spinning line around line in circles once more and, yeah. Yeah. And it's
1: the first time she's wearing a dress like yours today where it's the lovely like white linen with the embroidery, with the embroidery. right it's the first time she's i will say that. this movie is so worth it just for the looks okay oh. i've said
2: so many bad things about it but it's so Instagrammable, and i want all of those embroidered linen dresses oh, it's the only thing i ever want
1: to wear <laughs> Cop again that look uh-huh yeah. And so, yeah, so she gets pulled off to go with the women and then Christian gets taken to speak to the one of the village elders to basically be like, hey, we need new blood. You should have sex with one of our women who has we haven't even mentioned this, but who has over the course of the movie uh, baked a pie with her pubic hair in it and also served him that and a glass of juice with her menstrual blood in it. And it's. It's so funny, like this is a funny moment when you are watching them all like sit at this banquet table eating and Christian's glass is just... A little bit redder than everyone else's. Speaking
0: of speaking of getting caught up in the details here, like it does wonder to me. I mean, did did she save her menstrual blood? Because if she's got fresh menstrual blood to put in her tea, then how is she like having sex with them to get pregnant, like the next day?
1: I assume that she saved her menstrual blood, but just just it just in case. the company drops by, yeah, of course. All of the all of the of age women just have a bottle on their nightstand.
0: It's basic Martha Stewart, like, <laughs> you should always have a jar of menstrual blood on hand uh-huh. in case company comes over. Yeah. And yeah.
2: some pubes to bake into a pie. Yeah, I mean, not? just hospitality. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, that's her seduction right, essentially.
1: Yeah, and we see this, like... This movie is filled with beautiful folk art, beautiful fake folk art, but we see this wonderful tapestry early in the movie where we see, like, in panels it play out of like how to seduce a man is by doing these things like baking something into a pie, putting a rune under their bed, et cetera, et cetera. So. Do you think
2: this movie believes in the supernatural? Quick aside, I mean, there's these moments like where the flowers and the flower crown appear to be breathing or that dish on the table, that gross kind of meaty thing is undulating. Do you think that those are just uh, psychological projections from Danny's mind or is this a world where magical things happen? I think
0: like Hereditary, this is a movie about kind of distrusting your own perceptions or maybe you know, learning to trust your perceptions in a different way. Uh, you know, Hereditary is kind of a movie about not believing that the thing you see has happening is actually happening until it's too late. And it's a movie that even like in that kind of famous scene with, like Tony Collette, you know, up on the ceiling, like really plays with oh, even your geez. literal perceptions, like just your inability to make out an object in the dark. And this is a movie that fucks with your mind, but also just fucks with your eyes. I mean, because there are all those shots where... You know, you kind of think maybe something is doing that like breathing effect in one corner of the screen, but then you look over there and maybe it stopped, and and maybe it's doing, and you can't quite tell. They don't apply it evenly across the screen; like it kind of moves in little blobs around little bit. So it just um, really makes you distrust your own eyes. In addition yeah. to everything else,
1: it's very it's very much in line with like an actual mushroom trip. Like that's kind of the hallucinations that psilocybin gives you, and so it. I, I do think that it's more like we experience the supernatural in this movie through the natural, through the hallucination of the, like, psychedelic drug. It's not that there is any, like, magic in the world that they are out here casting spells or, like, worshipping gods that exist. It's more that that the natural is their route to the supernatural. Mm-hmm.
2: And it certainly is a movie that is, as Annihilation was last year, is obsessed with these organic images melded with non-organic things you know Mm -hmm. like the grass growing up through her feet well i mean i guess feet are organic but you know the combination of the a plant and animal body and those kind of hallucinations are all over this movie as well yeah the
0: hybridization and the and the sort of connection between humans and nature and humans are and animals i mean you one of the last things we see in this movie is literally a, a, a human being wearing the skin of a dead bear so it it's kind of You know, we are not as far from the primitive and the animal, the pagan and and kind of pre-Christian understanding of the world as we sometimes
1: like to think that we are. Speaking of wearing skin, we totally forgot about how when William Jackson Harper's character gets murdered, we see someone wearing Will Poulter's skin. And that's like he like walks in and he's like he thinks it's Will at first. And that's what makes him turn around. And he's like, Will, what are you doing? And then he realizes like, oh, God, this is a person wearing a Will suit. And then he gets and it
2: happened head. so fast that I myself was saying, wait, was that Will Poulter or was, did they do something to Will Poulter's eyes? Oh, like it wasn't s- actually until we uh, saw Will Poulter at the very end, kind of scarecrow style, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that I realized that that had been somebody wearing his suit. That I was still really I gross. can
0: be I can be a little slow. I had to have that explained to me uh, afterwards. I loved it. Yeah. Um, but anyway, we need to we, we, need, should, we to need to get to
2: the sex barn. Let me yeah. we'll talk about
1: the maypole and then the sex. Barn. OK, so the maypole um,
2: dance is at first proposed as this sort of they shoot horses, don't they? Spinoff where like the last standing female maypole dancer becomes the May Queen. Mm-hmm. but And so I thought what was going to follow would be a They Shoot Horses style kind of awful torture scene. But in fact, there's something really joyful about that dance around the maypole, even as people are you know falling down in exhaustion and, and sort of thwacking each other to, to make each other fall down.
1: And, as, a, and right before they do that, they drink the psychedelic tea and you get the uh, breathing that I love so much, which happens just a few times in the movie and you don't really understand what it means, but it means something to them. And it's the... Whew, Mm -hmm. And I don't know what that means, but I just like that sound. Ari Aster is good at finding a sound that just sticks with you afterward. Exactly.
2: (laughs) And so the idea, I believe, of the the May Queen scene is that it's sort of her acculturation, right? Whether it's the imagined Swedish speaking or, you know, just her winning the contest to Mm -hmm. her own surprise and being accepted and... Decorated with all these flowers by them. It's to me sort of the moment that she starts to see the possibility like I could become one of these people
1: It's a moment when she's able to Completely free herself from the grief she's been feeling in a way that she doesn't I feel she never even Realized she could free herself from until she just gives herself over to this dancing moment and this community and she's like, oh wait I I can step out of these emotions
0: And it's almost like it's like this weird, like, sort of cognitive behavioral therapy or something like she just kind of puts her mind aside and loses herself in her body. And then, yeah, hallucinates that she can speak Swedish and then she really kind of belongs in this place. And soon after that, I mean, stops speaking altogether. And that seems to be, um, I don't know, actually, about sort of Ari Aster's own, you know, history with, you know, like family mental illness or or psychotherapy or whatever. But I mean, both these movies seem to proceed from a pretty profound understanding of that process and that seems to be something that kind of deeply informs like that scene and where this movie goes just about the ability of kind of getting past your own you know anxiety and and grief and just finding a way to root yourself in the world in a different way
2: which might be more unproblematically empowering to danny if it didn't (laughs) also involve joining a murder cult for the rest of your life not a cult I mean, everybody, you know,
0: we all come to it in
2: our own ways.
1: <laughs> Definitely. Um, so, so, But
2: that scene actually bleeds into, as it were, the sex barn scene, right. right? It's during the maypole ritual that Christian gets lured away by the redheaded seductress, isn't no, it? No,
1: no. So after, so after the maypole dance, because the redhead is participating in the maypole dance, this is when Christian is given a glass of the special water. Um, watching the maple dance, he just downs it. And then they go to the banquet that Danny gets carried to on the like platform that she's standing on. And they have the banquet and Danny gets led off to go do her May Queen ritual. She gets pulled off in the cart and everything. And that is when Christian gets pulled into the sex barn, which I think sex barn is a little glib because it's clearly the, um, <laughs> it's the place where they keep their holy scriptures. So, like,
2: Show some respect for the sex barn, please. Thank
1: you. <laughs> but yeah. So, I, I mean, please, someone describe the sex barn because it is wild.
2: Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, one thing the sex barn contains is something that the very disappointing ending of Hereditary also contained, which is a semicircle of old people naked I, and chanting
1: I have to push back on you because I heard the Culture Gab Fest <laughs> and I do not think that Ari Aster thinks that old people are scary I don't think that that's what this image is supposed to be uh
0: There um, are some slightly younger mean you know at least you know middle aged or people in their 30s who do it's not all like you know kind of weird sort of uh, you know quote unquote creepy like old women and stuff they're you know creepy, creepy middle aged people. So I just want to stand <laughs> up for not, creepy middle aged people. It's not that I'm
2: saying Ari Aster hates or dreads or fears old people in fact I think the Atastupa scene really speaks to a kind of thinking about you know age and elderism and what it might be there's just something inherently comic about these semicircles of chanting nudies right. and yet he uses them on two different occasions in two movies in a row his only two movies so far as sort of an exi- exhibition of the ultimate horror and i don't know i mean there's just something sort of occulty and silly about it that made that and scene and it's a little it's a little like by. off
0: the shelf that yeah. image like you see it
1: in, in movies a lot yeah i mean yeah. it's a little
2: bit like ooh goat horns on an altar i guess i'm in the occult world now
1: <laughs> right yeah i i i will say but of course as we've already been over i've drunk the special water i have like sold my soul to this cult already i really found that scene in some ways, moving in its own way of, like, this is how the community deals with birth and being a part of, like, being a part of conception. And so, like, that means that the pregnancy and the birth are all, they start from a moment of community, in a way, and that this is all the women's pregnancy—it's not just hers—and
2: it's how they maintain exogamy, basically, right? Exactly. It's bringing in sperm from the outside every yeah. once in a while. Although they are gambling—I mean, she has a twenty percent chance of getting pregnant in the best-case scenario, so they better have some other dudes on tap.
0: And this is a community that also sort of deliberately, like, inbreeds its oracle figures, so that you know, by the time we've gotten to whatever generation of Harga this is, I mean, the the oracle figure is kind of hideously deformed. I feel you know. like there's
2: also a fetishism in those close-up shots of the oracle figure who we never learn anything about. I mean, right. I think you could make an Which argument that they're kind both. of ableist and gross. They're not my favorite part of the movie when we get a shot cut to the distorted face of the oracle. And that's
0: guy. another, you know, like Ari Aster's thing for like faces and heads is another sort of carryover from Hereditary. Like, I mean, it's not, he's not covering his tracks. Um, I don't really think he's trying to, but he's definitely not covering his tracks super well.
1: I will say I was kind of disappointed when watching it both times in the theater to see that scene because to me it is like this, yes, it is comical because of the way that Christian has the look on his face of like, oh, fuck, what's happening? But- I was kind of disappointed because everyone was laughing. Right. Like just laughing the whole way through that scene. And it just felt like their laughter was for the wrong reasons. It felt like their laughter was a discomfort with what was going on, not laughing at the moments that were actually funny. It was more of a way for the audience to deal with something that they aren't, that is so unfamiliar to them.
0: I mean, I do think there is a lot of comedy in this movie. I mean, it is, I I liken it to Force Majeure from a few years ago, where I just think it's a really really, like, dark. Obviously, there's a lot of horror in it, too, but I think it's a really dark comedy and there are moments in it where you kind of almost have to laugh. Um,
1: Oh, yeah, and seeing it again, I laughed at so many more times. Yes. Specifically
2: in the sex barn scene, I think you are supposed to laugh at the moment that the one woman goes and starts, like, shoving his Working his butt,
1: yes. (laughs) That was comical.
0: Yes, but it is also, I mean, it does speak to, and and I think this is, like, a flaw in the film. I mean, the extent to which Christian has been kind of so dehumanized uh, that, I mean, he's basically in the last 10 minutes of the movie, he is like kind of sexually assaulted and murdered and we don't really care. Or you have to maybe take a step back and go like, Oh, I guess this is like pretty bad. This stuff that is going on now, but I I feel like a, a stronger movie would have You could make Christian a bad guy and still have us feel for him like a little bit more Um, or still, you know, or make Danny less of an idiot for still believing that there's some potential there as well. And and I feel like he gets – I mean I guess it's not surprising that this is a movie made by someone who identifies with the Danny figure because Christian is kind of thrown under the bus – So hard from the very beginning. Yeah,
2: I mean, and to me that is, again, just it just cuts into the simple suspense of the movie. You know, like I want to think something during the course of the movie besides over and over again, like, wow, this guy's an asshole. He's a horrible boyfriend. I knew that from the very first moment he came on screen.
1: Yeah, like when he tries to steal his friend's thesis idea and et cetera, et cetera. Like there's so many times when it's just like, you've made it too clear that we hate this dude and we want him to die. But so while the sex barn is happening, uh, Danny comes back from the Ritual of the May Queen and is supposed to go uh, celebrate with all the other May Queens. But hears something coming from the barn, which is another moment of shared sound, which is uh, the redhead is clearly like uh, approaching orgasm. And all of the women in the room are kind of screaming and having that like shared experience with her. Danny hears it and walks over and peeks into the keyhole of the building and then just loses it. And that's when she starts screaming and doesn't know how to handle it. And that and the women like have to rush her off to their barn. And that's when we get the breathing of just like we see her so horribly distraught that they all of a sudden just start like (sighs) kind of like breathing with her and get it. And it's interesting because it's kind of a. It's kind of a juxtaposition with the first scene of her screaming while being held in Jack Rayner's silent arms when he's still like wearing his snow coat and everything. And she's just screaming there alone here. She's screaming with them. And so they're able to control her screaming and kind of pull her back from the like brink that she seems to be on by breathing with her. They're able to slow her breathing and share her pain that she's experiencing at that moment. So it isn't as painful
2: ok, so with his work done in the sex barn, um, Christian goes staggering out and starts to make some horrifying discoveries. before we get to the to the ending with um with the the May Queen and Danny's choice, um wh- what does he discover as he's nakedly <laughs> <laughs> staggering through the commune?
0: So one of the things I love about this movie is that it is set basically in, a village that seems to be like roughly the size of a football field. Like it seems like you get there and there's a shot of the length of it. It seems like you can see the whole thing. And yet somehow we keep kind of stumbling on buildings that we've never seen before, places that haven't been investigated yet. So Christian stumbling around with his dick flapping in the wind, um, stumbles across this one building and he's trying to hide from people. And of course, it's late in the movie. You know that wherever he attempts to hide is going to be worse than the place he just left. <laughs> um, and it, so he stumbles into it. Seems like a nice little uh, chicken coop. And then uh, pan up and there is the uh, dead remains of a young British traveler um, hanging over it from his flayed uh, shoulder blades. Right. Some the sort guy
2: of... who, who, who purportedly tried to leave. Simon. Yes.
0: Yes. Who? Yes. Who? Who made the train?
1: He got in on the train and he just (laughs) left because he had to go. I may be wrong, but I think he's still alive because it seems like his lungs are still, like they have like opened up his back and have like strung his lungs out and they seem to be moving. They do, yeah. It's not
0: clear if that's just sort of like, you know, it's just kind of seesawing on that thing or if he's actually, yes, but it is definitely, you know, it's one of those things where your eyes are maybe playing tricks on you. You can't tell Mm -hmm. if there's actually, you know, the screen is breathing or the person is. Um, But anyway, so Christian sees this, he is horrified and then he turns around and there is an old man from the village who like, Blows a little stuff of like pixie dust in his face and uh, paralyzes him for what turns out to be the remainder of both the movie and his life.
2: Doesn't he also catch a glimpse of of William Jackson Harper's legs sticking out of a yes, garden as he's he running seen? into?
1: Yeah, and right. there's like a rune drawn on the heel of Jacks of William Jackson Harper's foot, like that's just sticking straight out of the ground. And there's I, a
0: whole Easter egg thing that's going to be done probably when this movie hits video. Of like as you mentioned, there are not just runes like inscribed on things, there are like, you know, banquet tables set up in the shape of runes. There are, you know, runes and pictures and wallpaper and drawings, like all through this foreshadowing the movie. And I feel like, I I think it's a a runic language that they made up, Mm -hmm. but I, I think, if you watch the movie and kind of can screenshot all that stuff and decode it, I mean, they're going to be Reddit threads showing you exactly how everything in the movie is kind of foreshadowed by all these pictures and runes and everything that are
1: strewn all through it. I mean, even
2: without the runes, it's all freaking foreshadowed as hell. Yeah, you know I'd exactly what's up. Walk,
1: walking out of the movie, I was just like desperate for the movie to come out on video so that I could start screenshotting things because I just like I already know what I want my new Twitter background to be and everything. It's just I love it. I love it so much. Um, <laughs> You're and falling I, even like, for the Instagram. I want, I part want of the this GIF. Of her walking in the large flower dress, like struggling as the fire burns in front of or, like behind her. Anyway.
0: Are the girls like picking flowers while they're walking backwards? Walking backwards. Yes. yes.
1: So one of my favorite like images was when he gets the dust blown in his face and the guy who blew the dust closes his eyelids one at a time because he's paralyzed. And then immediately the next shot is the woman who gave him the uh, special water opening his eyelids one at a time. And so you only see one half of her and then you see the other half. And it's just like this really arresting moment for me.
0: And again, sort of playing off the theme of like limited perception and yada, yada, yada. And And
1: she's explaining to him, just so you know, your body is paralyzed, you can't move, you can't speak, but you're here and you're safe and everything's fine. And she
0: kind of makes it clear to us as well as him that, like, he can still feel things, which is going to be uh, quite important in the moment that comes.
2: Right, so he is wheeled up to the banquet table, and do they have another banquet at this point she presides over? this
1: is, they're, like, at the, um, kind of the dais that's shaped and painted like a sun, and it's where they have their first, like, Skull at the like beginning of the movie where when they get there and it's kind of like the welcoming moment But this is the leader of the village explaining like well This is the thing we do once every 90 years and we've already had four sacrifices that are of the outsiders We have two people who've already given their lives We have two more volunteers of our community who've given their lives and now it's the May Queen's honor to choose either another outsider or um, a chosen at random member of the village
0: so then they basically do like a bingo call where they have this big bowl full of uh, runes, I guess one for each villager, and they kind of, you know, twirl around, and then when r- rolls out the slot, rolls out of this bingo-like contraption, um, the villager is randomly selected. Torbjorn. Yes, tor- Torbjorn, of course. Torbjorn and, and Christian. Um, and so it falls follows Danny as the May Queen to select the ninth sacrifice from one of these two people. The movie does not show us the moment where she chooses, but... The, the next thing we see is Christian uh, paralyzed in a uh, uh, flayed bearskin, sitting inside of the little burning shack that they're about to light on fire. So well, and, we, we know what call she made.
1: And the bear moment was actually really nice to me too because it 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 signals more of the like this is a like. Spiritual ritualistic thing that they do because the older man in the village is like has the dead bear flayed open and he's teaching the young boys in the village how to properly dress the bear and cut out the intestines and everything. But then they just casually pick Christian up and put him on the table next to the emptied bear carcass, and you're like. Oh, shit, I know where this is going. And then you see the next shot is him being wheeled in with the bare head on him. It's oh, so good.
2: So I guess the idea is that that yellow triangular building that, that burns down eventually with all the bodies in it and some live people, too, is only built for this event every 90 years. It's just sort of like a temporary burning hut. It seems
1: like something like that. Yeah.
2: And who ends up in the hut? <laughs> let's let's go over what happens after she chooses Christian. He gets sewn up in the bear suit and put in the hut. All the bodies of the previously killed people are also brought in, kind of like stuffed like scarecrows, which is mm-hmm. really creepy.
0: Yeah. So the two the two English visitors, the two other graduate students. Those are like the four outsiders plus Christian. Then uh, two. Live volunteers from the villagers and the two old people, or I guess representations of the two old people because they've already been burned Burned. up. But there are sort of like, you know, straw effigies of them, maybe seasoned with a little bit of their ashes um, placed in there as well.
2: And uh, and all that stuff just gets carted into the building. And who sets it on fire?
1: Three of the villagers set it on fire. And actually, another rune moment is uh, the runes that are painted on the wall are actually then mirrored on the floor as well. It's like a a large rune is kind of etched out in hay. And the whole building is filled with hay. And one of the village elders comes in and gives the two live people who have chosen to give their lives for the community sap of the yew tree, which I'm assuming is some sort of like...
0: It's supposed to be probably some sort of, you know, anesthetic or something, uh, I guess. But, I mean, we find out pretty quickly that it doesn't work because we find out... Christian is totally paralyzed, so we get no reaction from here. But we see one of the live volunteers screaming in horrific agony as the flames begin to consume him. So it's pretty clear they're still feeling
1: well, I, everything uh, yeah, they ordinarily yeah, yeah, yeah. feel yeah. in those circumstances. Honestly, I I kind of loved the moment where he starts getting burned alive and doesn't realize how horrible and painful it is. But then you see it come over his face of like, oh, wait. Did I make a mistake kind of thing right. as like choosing choosing to give yourself to, for this community? But then the community starts screaming with him and starts sharing that pain that he is experiencing outside of the building. And you see them like basically rending their garments apart, just feeling the flames on them as he is inside.
2: I mean, I think the ultimate, ultimate thing to spoil in this movie, which in a way is almost like we should start with it, because the entire way you feel about the movie depends on it, is the smile. Danny's (sighs) smile at the very end. Right. right? She's been pretty catatonic faced ever since she discovered the sex barn. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Yeah.
0: The combination of like the maple drug and this kind of emotional shock is compl- she's like zonked. She is out of it. She is sitting there when they're may- when she's you know making this big like May Queen decision. She's sitting in this kind of pyramid of flowers with her head poking out, and it looks like I mean this is again like her body returning to the earth, but she also just looks like she's trapped in it or something. And well, she's almost like, disappeared underneath. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: And she's clearly standing in it because there's one, like, one of my favorite images, as I, I said just a little bit ago, is she's trying to walk in that thing and, like, not, like, walk just casually, but she's clearly, like, trying to move or something or break out of it. She's struggling, and it's just this image of her, like, dragging it along herself while the building burns, and then it, shoot, it goes back to Christian in the bear costume, and then we get the final image when it goes back to her. And she no longer looks distraught or sad. She feels happy.
2: Yeah, she slowly smiles, and that that close-up of her smile is the end of the movie. And I think, I mean, this is, I guess, one of the movie's big moments of ambiguity. It's not the most ambiguous sort of movie. Here's the moment, Sam, where I'm going to read you a sentence from your review okay. and ask you to explain yourself. Ooh. If Hereditary was about being trapped, Midsommar is about the terror of being let loose, the giddy, sickening rush of freefall— you laugh at its audacity, or maybe just to keep from losing your own grip on reality. By the time it's over, you can't wait for night to fall. So we hadn't even mentioned the fact that there, of course, in midsummer in, in Scandinavia, you're in essentially eternal daytime, right? Yes. So this is like the opposite of nighttime horror. But when you say, by the end, you can't wait for night to fall, and I'm thinking about that ending... I just want to know, are you happy for Danny at the end? Are you scared for her? Do you have a feeling that she's found belonging or that she's been, been taken over by a zombie cult? Are all these those things somehow true at once? I
0: mean, I've thought about it a lot because one of the things that left me ambivalent about the movie, or, you know, one of the things that I'm more ambivalent about is the way the ending left me. I was like, does this actually fit with, what? I mean, then what is the movie, like, not to be too pedantic about it, but like, what is the movie saying about grief? And I feel like it is I've come to understand it by sort of liking it to the end of the movie Brazil, which is basically about this, you know, the main character played by Jonathan Price is sort of, you know, trapped in this torture pit of this totalitarian state. And he goes into what we learn is like this sort of catatonic, like disassociative state, where there's this big fantasy of escape that feels like the movie has just slapped on a happy ending, and then it turns out, no, he's actually still there. And the last word is, well, he's gone away from us. And uh, Terry Gilliam, the director of Brazil, has said, like, he sees that as a, a victory for Sam Lowry because he's kind of found his own place. But it's also he's still trapped in the torture chair. And I kind of feel that way about Danny in this movie. Like she has I mean, she is happier in, in some way. She is also kind of completely divorced from reality, probably n- never coming back, never going back to I guess she doesn't have a family or a, a boyfriend and um whichever girlfriend was on the phone with her at the beginning is, is, I guess, not going to miss her, but she's not coming back. You know, she has kind of cut her ties. You know, whether or not, I mean, she's happier. Whether or not that is like a good happy or she's just finally lost her mind, whether she needed her mind in the first place, I guess, is something... I think the movie doesn't want to resolve. For yeah,
2: us. I mean, to me, it feels like a movie wanting things both ways. And I wish I could say, ah, the rich ambiguity of life <laughs> that it portrays. But the rest, given that the rest of the movie is so low on rich ambiguity, right? I mean, even you who love it, Daniel, agree that it's sort of like, hammer, hammer, hammer. Here's what's happening. Here's the parallel, the allegory with grief, et cetera. All the time through, it's been sort of clear what's happening on her emotional level and how that parallels what's happening in the physical world. And only at the end does it become completely wide open as to whether, you know, whether this is essentially some stage of grief resolution or, you know, the complete um, disassociation of the character.
1: I I totally agree. But I think for me the reason that it works so well to have such clear signposted uh, (laughs) mallet-to-the-face plotting and story beat is that, and maybe this is just me coming from a, like, Religious background growing up the son of a minister, but it really like reminded me of the ritual of religion, and that like a lot of ritual is not, and tradition isn't necessarily. Like it's always expected. It's we we return to the same readings every time we have the same drinking of the like I I grew up Christian. So like we have the same drinking of the uh, communion glass, everything like that. And it's not that any of these things are themselves moving or as themselves as like a spiritual act uh, transcendent. But it's the combination of these things and it's the immersion of yourself in the tradition that allows you this spiritual awakening that allows you this step past self, into community or into the other. And that's kind of how I felt this movie played out. is it really pulled you along as like a ritualistic spiritual experience rather than a narrative story. And so by the end, uh, Danny is experiencing some sort of transcendence that is outside of herself because she gave herself over. To the tradition and kind of experience that this community is
2: right but there's a menace to that as well you would oh, agree right i mean there's I, a sense think, that doing that losing oneself in a community is not necessarily a happy ending
1: right but i i think that there are no happy endings so I, why not give yourself over to this one
0: i feel like i'm doing a lot of like auteurist rating here but i mean it definitely like i mean these this midsummer and hereditary are both movies about the triumph of either pre or sort of anti-Christian tradition, you know, Satan worship and this kind of, you know, pagan, like naturalist cult or whatever we want to want to call it. And you know, what, what you're talking about is Daniel is really interesting to me because I certainly know people who don't even really wouldn't consider themselves believers anymore, but still go to church because of that. The, they find the ritual and the community so comfortable and kind of moving in its own right. Even if, they, if even if they don't believe in God, you know, and that's maybe some of what, you know, Danny is kind of grabbing onto here. I mean, they have this whole foundational myth which is kind of laid out about, like, this kind of, you know, dark creature who kind of came out of the woods and stole people, and so they do this thing every 90 years, and it's like, well, that's, you know, the movie clearly doesn't, this isn't the witch. Like, the movie doesn't believe that actually happened. You know, and it's so many, I guess, you know, hundreds or thousands of years ago that, that, that who knows, but this whole thing has been built up around it, and that thing that ritual that tradition community is is significant it has meaning in and of itself even if the thing it is based on isn't Um, true and i feel like that's what danny is that's what's what's comforting to her
1: i I also think of this as like come so one of my other backgrounds is theater that's what i have my undergrad in and i think of this the experience of this movie at least for me is more of a theatrical one than it is a cinematic one in that at least when I experience theater, I find myself giving myself over to the experience more and not and like immersing myself in the moment of theater because I'm watching like people in real life performing these things as opposed to watching them on a screen. And granted, yes, I was watching this on a screen, but like to me the cinematic experience is always one that has a bit more distance to it than the theatrical one. And he even says, Pele says in the beginning, like to Danny, I just want to warn you, like, what we're doing might seem weird or absurd, but just think of it as theater. Think of it as theatrical.
0: Well, and those moments where she's, you know, kind of crying out and surrounded by all these women kind of making these heaving sobs. I mean, it reminds me a lot of like you know, the first chapter of of Ravett's Out One or just a lot of those sort of, you know, the living theater, like those kind of, you know, 1960s, like experimental theater traditions where they mm-hmm. really kind of tried to get away from even um, you know the words, but but narrative, and just have this kind of you know gestalt like running through the room, and it feels like that's it, those very much feel like that kind of you know experiential theater traditions.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a movie all about having that experience, so it it seems seems natural that the viewer would have that experience. I wish that I had had that experience. <laughs> I really did feel outside of this movie and never almost, was almost never scared by it. At the very most, grossed out, but but not scared. But da- I, I was never Dana, scared either.
0: Dana, it's cultural.
2: And, I mean, people coming to this movie expecting a classic horror movie are certainly going to be disappointed if they're really looking for jump scares and, you know, your sort of classic monster movie. I mean, I think some people may take away nothing more complex from the ending than he was a horrible boyfriend, good riddance, and that's what the smile means. And, you know, on its own level, that's fine, too. Yeah, of
1: course. I think, though, like reading this as a uh, breakup movie, it's uh, very... If, if you want to put just that on it, then it's her basically the burning of him as uh the, as he's being carted in one of the elders is explaining that like the reason that they are burning the bear is that the bear represents the like worst, ugliest, darkest parts of them and that they are banishing that back to the recesses of their world to that, that then will creep back in, in 90 years. And so To me, it felt like if we're reading this as a breakup movie, then this is her purging herself of him as the worst part of herself and that she is elated by the end of the movie. She's overjoyed in some way because she realizes that it took this outside community to help her purge these worst parts of her life.
2: Yeah. Once again, with the slight downside that she now has to live in a murder cult forever. Sign but... me up. <laughs> All right. And
0: that was the last we ever heard. <laughs>
2: All right. So thank you so much for coming to Read the Runes with me, Daniel and Sam. Talk. Of course. <laughs> and uh, yeah, next time there's creepy Swedish Ariaster Aster action or any kind of Ariaster Aster action, I hope to have you both back to talk about it.
1: Oh, I'll be here. Thanks, Dana. Thank you, Dana.
2: Our producer today was Daniel Hewitt with help from Merritt Jacob. For Sam Adams and Daniel Schrader, I'm Dana Stevens. Thanks for listening, and uh, we'll talk to you again soon